yeah, he was just so... All his entire talk, Shannon, was just like that. It was like this beautiful unraveling. A thousand different petals just unraveled, thought after thought after thought. And those of you joining us, this is Touch Podcast, this is Ryan, this is Nate, and this is Shannon. And we are talking about ethicist Dr. Marvin Ellison and his time that we got to spend with him at the Just Sex Conference sponsored by the Alliance of Baptists at the Baptist Beer Garden that was also sponsored by Eden Theological Seminary and the Carpenter Center at Vanderbilt Divinity School. And yeah, Dr. Marvin Ellison, he uh, he rocked it. You know, when we first met him, um, I met him at the recording of the Beer Garden first. And so I had the interesting position of interviewing someone before really understanding the 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 power he has and ryan you knew more of him more than more than i did and that was just kind of like how the the arrangement of the beer garden worked out and then the next morning i got to hear him speak and um it's it's just like a thousand or a million uh petals of pure wisdom that's just kind of pouring out of him like a waterfall and like one thought leads to the next and he just unraveled so much i thought in his conversation he's brilliant yeah so let's listen to it and then we'll get back together in just a, in a few minutes once again we're here at the just sex conference where i'm having my mind blown i'm hearing ministers and preachers and baptists of all sorts talk to me about sex show me bible references and i am wigging out um but i'm also strangely aroused on every level so this is fantastic. Um, and welcome. Thanks for being a part of this next conversation. You're welcome. I didn't hear him in your sessions. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm... I haven't had a session yet, so you okay. haven't missed anything. So this is a sp- not a spoiler alert, but tomorrow morning you're going to be talking about, what's the name title of your... Uh, bearing Witness, Practicing and Proclaiming a Just and Healthy sexuality. That is a terrific title. Tonight, I would like for us to talk about a sexual ethic that feels good to me. All right. (laughs) But I want you to do most of the talking about that. All right. (laughs) So if you ask me, I'm trained as an ethicist, what I think good sex is, My shorthand answer, it is sex that is pleasurable and ethically principled. So what I'm invested in is exploring an ethical eroticism. And I think this is what the church should be teaching and encouraging and modeling. And I think if the church did that, it would be one of the best evangelism strategies ever. But that's not where we are. And I started work. Did you say no, 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 Nate? I just have a question. That, but you... No, go ahead with your question. Uh, if what would be an example of that? I mean, if we can't have an it ethical now, eroticism, correct. Even if if we can't have it now, I guess in a perfect world, what would work? Well, um, a good question. 
I think it can look like a number of things. I agree with Bill Staten that the most productive approach is not uh, a mapping out of rules or prohibitions or to try to update a Christian legalism. I think that's the wrong strategy. I think instead we are better served if we think about the core values that we want to live out in our lives, including our lives as sexual persons. I was writing a book about sexual ethics and about three quarters of the way through when I had an aha. I mentioned this this afternoon in a discussion. I had this aha, I don't think we need a Christian sexual ethic. Well, this was highly problematic because I had a book contract. I was three quarters <laughs> of the way through, and all of a sudden I decided I was doing the wrong project. But what I meant by that is I don't think we need a separate ethic of sex and sexuality because sex is something particularly uh, dangerous, powerful, risky, that we need a specialized set of controls and containers to keep us safe. I think instead what we need is a good, comprehensive life ethic, a part of which is about our human sexuality and our desire and need for intimate touch, to touch and be touched, to love and be loved as part of what it means to be human. And so for me, the challenge as a Christian is my tradition does not help me with that project. In fact, I struggle because... For me, I dissent from so much of the tradition when it comes to sex and sexuality. And at the same time, I claim to stand in that tradition and be one among others who represents it. So part of what I find is it's helpful for me to know that at the core of my faith, is an invitation to live passionately out of a commitment to do love and justice and to seek justice and compassion in all aspects of our lives together. And so when I was invited to uh, participate 30 years ago in a study for the United Presbyterian Church, um, we, as a group, made an important decision early on in our process. We said one option is we could ask the church to take a small step forward. Just nudge people gently to have a bit more openness, a, a, a bit more appreciation, uh, a bit more tolerance around these issues. Or we could tell the truth. 
<laughs> what it is we really believe, what it is we really desire, and what it is we hope for. And we said we were not there to speak for the church, but to add a word that was not yet, to our understanding, clearly articulated in the church. And so what we developed is what we call uh, a Christian theology and ethic of justice love. And our suggestion was that what should be the normative standard in all relating from the most intimate to the most social, um, the, the normative standard should be what is just and loving. And so our proposal was that we no longer make marriage or heterosexuality the normative expectation or to identify heterosexual marriage as the one and only responsible way to live as sexual and spiritual persons. That certainly those are options where people live with integrity, live with great faithfulness, but heterosexuality and marriage do not exhaust the possibilities. So what would it mean for us as sexual, uh, spiritual persons to ask of ourselves uh, not to settle for anything less than what is justice, uh, whatever is just and loving in how we are treated? So that we ask more for ourselves, and also we ask more from ourselves, that we only treat others in ways that are just and loving. And our conclusion as a group is this would not lower the moral bar, but raise it. Because what we've discovered is that, that if you simplify the conventional ethics, celibacy and single, singleness, sex only in marriage. What's difficult about that is not that it says too much, it says way too little. It doesn't give enough guidance. Too much happens in marriage that is unethical, harmful, dehumanizing. Everything from marital rape abuse, exploitation, partner abandonment. And there are too many people who are not heterosexual, who are not married, but are sexually active, who are doing so in responsible and faithful ways. So we need an ethical framework that's far more discriminating, far more discerning than what we have available. So our invitation to the church was to come of age about sexuality and have a much more challenging conversation about how to frame sexuality as a justice issue for the church and to look at how our lives as persons, including as sexual persons, have been diminished because of sexism, heterosexism, racism, economic exploitation, on and on that love is imperiled by injustice. And so our personal well-being is utterly bound up with 
the quality of our communities and those broader relationships. So um, what happened? We wrote the report. The church at its national meeting in Baltimore overwhelmingly rejected it. <laughs> 600 and some to 27. Overwhelmingly defeated. At the same time, it became a runaway bestseller. <laughs> Sold over half a million copies. A national church executive said to me, boy, you all created such a mess. He said, but my one regret if we didn't charge more than $5 a copy. He said we could have made so much money. <laughs> um, Newsweek magazine covered it with a story entitled Roll Over John Calvin. Oh, wow. Uh, Presbyterian Layman, which is our conservative folks in the Presbyterian Network, described our study as barnyard theology. But I'm proudest of the review that our study had in Playboy magazine, <laughs> where awesome. a former Catholic couldn't get over our affirmation that God delights in our sensuality and our sexuality. I mean, he had a little bit to say about other things, but he just couldn't quite wrap his mind around that this was a Christian group talking that way. So um, that was 30 years ago. Um, uh, what was the title of the book? Oh, thank you for asking. What was the title? <laughs> what was the title of the book? Keeping Body and Soul Together. Sexuality, spirituality, and social justice. So, yeah. Wow. Questions? Yeah, Are we going questions. to questions now? Yeah. That was like thunder. Gosh. <laughs> right there. Yeah. Hi, my name is Catherine House, and um, I just want to thank you. I'm familiar with your work, um, and I, you're a forerunner um, in naming justice and kind of like a holistic um, sexuality. And I, so one of the things that's striking to me is that there are a lot of queer folks who've been saying this about sex for a really long time. Um, <laughs> And it's sometimes hard for me as a to, I really just want to name that there is such good work that's decades old in this. Um, and those voices, um, I just want to keep them live in the conversation because those folks have the arrows in their backs. Um, and the rest of us who are kind of coming on now into things, owe a lot to those forerunners. Um, and so I just wanted, this isn't a new conversation. This started happening in the 60s and 70s, and folks gave up a lot for it. So I just kind of want to name that. Um, and to say 
to say thank you for pressing gender justice and racial justice throughout the conversation um, around sexuality, and then to ask you, um, what, does, what do you see happening in the field that gives you life um, around theology right now? What are directions that excite you that are happening now, kind of having been in the conversation for a long time? Um, so either questions that you see or new voices or new perspectives, new energy, um, what are you seeing? Great question. Um, so I think for me, what I find most exciting um, is the commitment to do intersectional analysis and strategizing for social change and make the connections across these issues and across communities around a, the comprehensive movement for justice. Um, um, it, uh, tomorrow is, is when I get a chance to do my presentation, so I'll, I'll wait to do, do the spiel. I had intended, and if I had had more time, I was going to talk about and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what I see as the opportunity that we have as faith leaders to change the conversation. That's what we tried in the Presbyterian Report 30 years ago. Um, a lot of pushback and resistance to doing that. Um, but 30 years later, what we were talking about is not radical. It's it's gotten much more mainstream and, and all that. But I mean by changing the conversation, really, we need to change the subject. I think in the church we've been talking about things that don't really matter. I think we need to get well beyond this crazy preoccupation with sexual orientation, for example. That what really matters is not knowing someone's orientation but knowing their sexual integrity. Do they live out of a character and conduct that exemplifies living a principled life? I mean, if I know you're lesbian or trans or straight, I don't know whether you're trustworthy to have a conversation over coffee that would be candid or not. I need to know more. But if you tell me you're a person of integrity... I know much more about you. So we've not been asking the right questions. So we need to change the subject, both in terms of what we've been talking about. We need to do a lot more talking about how sex and sexuality have been distorted by sexism, heterosexism, racism, and so forth. And we need to change the subject in terms of who gets to speak is listened to and taken seriously. And if anything, what's a, a fabulous development that is continuing is we have so many more people in the conversation. And when you enlarge the conversation partners, you change the conversation. And for many of this, 
for us, what this has meant is claiming our authority to interpret scripture, to teach, to preach with authenticity. Not the only word, but an authentic and credible word that needs to be taken seriously. Um, but I have to say, there have been gains made, but we have an ongoing struggle to create the conditions for this work. We cannot take it for granted that we will have a carpenter program or seminaries that have inclusive policies. So much can be lost so quickly. We have to stay vigilant and invested in movement building, community building, and institution uh, uh, reformation. One last word. Um, I'm so grateful for my teachers who taught me uh, enough that I began to understand how much I didn't know and the harm I could do out of blissful ignorance. My first month of teaching at a seminary, a female student came to see me in tears. She had discovered that her husband, who was a military officer, was cross-dressing. And she explained to me that she now was expecting the marriage to dissolve because he was gay. And I said, I really appreciate your sharing this story. Are you aware that the vast majority of cross-dressing men are heterosexual? You might want to check with your husband whether he's gay or just cross-dressing. So she did. She came back smiling. He liked to cross-dress. He wasn't gay. And for her, that was a great gift. Now they have grandchildren and so forth and so on, and I haven't quite caught up with where the cross-dressing has gone to. But I was grateful that my teachers had sat me down to say, there's some differences to pay attention to. And be respectful when people tell their stories and make space for them. I think our foundational ethical obligation is to do no harm. And where possible, to do good. Um, and so um, I hope we will continue to hold that commitment. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For those who've been listening to some of our other podcasts from that particular uh, event, I just want y'all to know there's not beer always associated with our interviews. It's just that was one hour and 45 minute period of time that was a Baptist beer garden. But I am not so sure that Marvin had any beer at all because like he was laser sharp on point. I agree. Fount of wisdom. I could have listened to him all evening. I loved how he said that um, 
he's writing a book on sexual ethics. And then as he started to question, he doesn't believe there should be a sexual ethic. Um, and yet he's in the disposition of needing to write a book on one. And that crisis as like, I mean, he's got so much, folks speak so highly of him. So to hear him be honest with that and um, how he, by always being on his toes, this is really, this really allows him to be so brilliant with his, with his ethics and his faith because he's willing to question himself and go on that journey and have such wonderful things, things to say as we've just heard today. That willingness to question yourself is, I think, so vital when it comes to any sort of journey, but especially in academia. Uh, but yeah, I found this guy to be totally brilliant. But something that I want to clarify, I want to insert a, a word that you left out that I think really changes the meaning of his, his presentation. He wasn't saying that he didn't feel the need for a sexual ethic. He didn't feel the need for a separate sexual ethic. Right. Right. Yes. Thank you. A separate sexual ethic. A separate. Yeah. He's a big believer in sexual ethics. He just doesn't feel as if it needs to be treated any differently than ethics in general. Right. Uh, and I thought that that was actually a brilliant thought that has never entered my mind. That if we approach sex the way that we approach life and social relationships, just in consideration and thoughtfulness and um, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, et cetera, et cetera. I think people would conduct themselves sexually in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. His big, his big concern about um, just our overall lack of integrity in relationships. Like I, that really, that really struck me. Um, uh, uh, and that he, uh, he says something to the effect of, um, you know, the things we're talking about in church um, don't matter. Like the things that we get obsessed about and talk about at church oftentimes are just, those conversations are not going to improve our quality of life. They're not going to, we're not going to live in a more just society. We're not going to live our lives day to day with more integrity. Um, and we're, we're not going to make people feel as if the church is a safe place if those are the same conversations we keep having over and over again instead of opening the dialogue to bigger conversations, more important conversations. Right. I, I remember just being in the room during the beer garden. Once he said that, I just I just remember this the the sounds in the room was just like, yeah, ah, uh, they keep you know basically you know when he said like we're not talking about the things that don't matter. I mean, we're talking about the things that, that aren't, aren't mattering. We're not focusing on integrity. Um, it, it created so much spaciousness and possibility that, um, that I, didn't think, I don't think we knew we were cheating ourselves out of by being so um, fearful of, of some other things. Well, what, made me, what, what I thought about was um, uh, a, a buddy of mine – uh, pastors a church and in that church there is an owner of several apartment complexes in that town and some of those buildings are really run down they're really gross and this guy who is a leader in this church is also known in town as a slumlord and he you know one of the things he's the, the points that Marvin is making um, is that our problem isn't that we don't have a good, isn't 
that our sexual ethics are off. It's that we we live an unprincipled life. How we treat people matters. And if we're an unprincipled person, uh, it doesn't matter if it's sexually or financially or um, in the grocery store or fighting over a stupid-ass video game console at Walmart on Black Friday, right? It's like there is a there's a, a, a lack of character that permeate that, that informs our behavior and we're basically talking about integrity. I think we're both talking about that. I'm rambling. We're both talking about integrity. It's yeah. We are talking about integrity. <laughs> He's brilliant. So I want to throw a topic out that I yeah. latched onto when he said it. Um, I'm really interested in hearing you guys respond to his expression that as a society, we have become really good at the repression of ethical eroticism. And that he sees that as a major social injustice. How did that strike you? I, it, what, what, it, it really affirms a lot for me. Hearing him say that, kind of like it puts light on something that I was feeling inside and it was kind of a shame to acknowledge because there was no place to put it out there. And that was kind of like breathing life or breathing some light into it to hear him, to hear him say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you know, it was a beautiful thing for me. One of uh, Christianity's classic hypocrisies is if you're heterosexual, you know, you, anything you do with your sexuality is m- okay or mostly okay but if you cross the boundary uh into homosexual behavior or you're trans or or you know it's not heteronormative then you've absolutely every time have done something terrible and what make the the thing i remember um and this is an old example but like britney spears can run off to las vegas and marry someone she doesn't know and that's okay, but two men who are loving, have a loving and just relationship, you know, that's bad. Like, there's, like, that there, that sort of double standard sort of lacks integ- internal integrity for, yeah, and I don't think it's a good witness. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. No. Um, one thing I remember that I thought was really, well, Shannon, if this is something that I think we've, We've, we've talked about this when we were after, after the Just Sex event that, um, you know, his homosexuality was not in the forefront with what he was saying. Um, he I missed, I totally missed the fact that he's gay. I don't know how I missed it, but I, I, I don't recall that being, maybe I've just slept since then, but I, it, 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 it's not what stood out to me as I interacted with him in any way, shape or form. And I, I don't know, you know, I don't know why I missed it. But yeah, yeah, I, I missed it too. I guess probably because it doesn't really matter that much. I still think he's brilliant, whether he's gay or straight. Right, right. And I think I think there's something to be said about that because I asked Ryan, I said, Ryan, you know, Ryan, I remember I had this conversation with you. It's like, dude, this guy's fantastic. Like, how come I haven't heard of him sooner? And I'm not sure if you remember this, but you can corroborate. And Ryan said, probably because he's gay. And I was like, what? Well, yeah, that if you're a, if you grew up in American evangelicalism, you probably haven't read his, any of his books. 
or had a chance to hear him speak. Right. And I think we, I, I hope that we, I would hope that we are coming to a place in our country where that, you know, a, when you introduce the pastor or the professor or the speaker, you know, you're not introducing, here's our woman preacher of the day, or here's our gay, here's our the token gay, gay today speaker. we have a gay ethicist, you know, that we're just, um, people can just be people and you might figure out, oh, I think this guy's gay or this woman might be a lesbian. Um, that that's not, you know, our sexuality is not centered in the conversation about, you know, that our, our discipline, our expertise, our life experiences, you know, can be yeah. first and not. Say So here's a quote from his main talk, not, not the one that we just aired where we interviewed him, but uh, the one that I missed and that you guys got to attend. But uh, when I heard this little snippet on the playback, it, it stood out to me so much, I wrote it down. He said that we have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility, not to settle in our relationships for the convenient, the shoddy, the conventionally expected, or the safe. That really got my attention because I just envisioned that woman who's like, oh, it's just my marital duty. I have to do it, you know, so that he doesn't complain because it has been two weeks. So I guess I got to spread my legs tonight and let him have at it. It's like, oh my God, that is so shoddy. That is so convenient. That is so conventionally expected. It is so safe. There's nothing tension filled or erotic or exciting or energizing about that mentality at all. Yet so many women think that that's the best that they can do. And that wow. makes me sad. That makes me very sad. It, 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 his whole concept of um, repressing ethical eroticism, uh, it reminded me of this meme that a client of mine sent to me that I laughed so hard when I saw it. It had pictures of two different women and one woman had just this disgusting look on her face like she was about to eat a plate of worms or something and the other one was a woman who was putting her hair up at a ponytail and on the one that had a disgusting look on her face it was about giving head and the woman who had the disgusting look the quote was well okay if i have to and the one where she was putting her hair up in a ponytail the quote was he's gonna see god tonight <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. That whole thing of marrying eroticism with holiness, like marrying sexuality and spirituality. I have been trying to preach that for 25 years, and Marvin Ellison outdid me in the 10 minutes that we interviewed him to just verbalize it so eloquently and, and in such a direct, no nonsense way that you walked away from that talk going, yeah, why haven't we all thought of that before? That we have an ethical responsibility to turn up the heat in our relationships, to feel like we're sitting on a cutting edge and to enter into that state of eroticism with one another because that's something that only we can do for one another. Only human beings can do that for one another. And we need to do that in the context of our loving, committed, safe relationships. If we're not, I think that that's when people are so tempted to look elsewhere. I think that that's one of the reasons why we have such an outbreak of sexual compromise these past several decades is I think that it's a direct response to the whole purity culture 
of just the pendulum swings hard, the harder it goes toward purity, the harder it goes toward acting out in the other direction. You know, I'm really glad you said that because I never, when I was, when I was listening to, to Marvin and him sharing all these thoughts, I didn't, especially those, that, those final thoughts you said there, I, re- I remember that too when I was talking about, um, you know, for the, for the safe as well. And it didn't hit me the same way it hit you. Right? I didn't think about it as the woman who had to, uh, to obligate herself um, and what happens there. Like that, I, I heard what he talked about. It was very freeing and liberating to me as a man in my sexuality there. Um, but how healing it is for women to hear it was, is new. I didn't think about that. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. He, um, he, he, uh, uh, he makes the case for justice as right relationship. And to piggyback on what you're saying, Shannon, um, you know, we, in evangelical circles, we talk about, you know, if you just, if you get your relationship right with God, then the other stuff falls in line. And I, I think that's an oversimplification, but, but there's a parallel here where, you know, if, if our relationship is right with our partner, it's right with the people in our faith community and our neighbors, like the justice stuff is natural. Like the, like treating people right, giving people, um, uh, you know, being loving towards other people, that, that stuff falls into place. And, um, and I, and I think about how, you know, the barriers to us being able to have healthy conversations about sexuality in church or even healthy sexual conversations with our partner. And it is an injustice when we can't uh, be true to ourselves and be honest and create the loving and trusting container that, you know, it might be feel anxious saying a little bit crazy for a minute but we're going to work through that because we're going we're working on getting this relationship right and the result of that is going to be this more just and loving relationship and faith community um but yeah but yeah he like i i just think he did i guess i share the struggle with and having been a guest speaker and consultant at churches and just hear churches being really obsessed and um spending lots of time on on things that and topics that don't matter both both in sexuality and and otherwise um yeah Uh, i think john stewart calls it the bullshit mountain like people just get obsessed about stuff and they just keep climbing the same bullshit mountain and they get to the top of it and they you know and it's just Mm. well they're not not putting first things first i guess And I think that's where, like, it's so brilliant that we're approaching sexuality with ethics in in this episode, Um, because ethics really should be uh, that thing that deconstructs mountains of bullshit, Um, and things don't have to get caught up with, it doesn't have to get, you know, um, well, actually, I I don't know where I was going to go, I'm not going to say that part, period, really, that's it. Ethics, this ethics should cut through the bullshit, and he's doing that. Um, especially with sexuality, sexuality is something where it's such a mysterious thing. 
that all we really have to trust to get, find a way through is the integrity we have with our bodies. Um, and for, for him to talk about living in integrity, having integrity being the main focus and not all the other things that we get lost on, um, it really does, it really is going to make us focus on aligning with our bodies ultimately. And that's a scary thing for a lot of us to do. Um, yeah. And that's what this, that's what this podcast is all about is cutting to, it's cutting through the bullshit saying what we need to hear. And now we have to confront this and what are we going to do about this? We can't just be caught in the loop of talking about it either. Like we got to apply and live these ethics that we're hearing to really challenge. And, and then we talk about it. Yeah. And I think that the whole point of the show um, too, was something that I really experienced at this just sex conference. It's that I needed to be exposed to different conversation, different vocabulary around these topics, because when you've been running with the same pack for a long, long time, and the only conversation has been the, you know, the traditional, I guess, dating goodbye, every man's battle, every woman's battle type of things. I'm not going to say that it's that the things that like we wrote about in that every man's battle and every woman's battle series, I'm not going to say that I disagree with them. I'm just saying that at this point in my life, I'm realizing that it was only part of the conversation that needed to be had. There's a whole nother part of the conversation that the church historically hasn't been as comfortable or Christians haven't been as comfortable having. And that's, that's what I think is the point of this show. And the reason why I wanted to go to that just sex conference, I want to put myself in the same space as people like Dr. Sean Warner Garcia, people like Dr. Marvin Ellison, people like Dr. Bill Satan. I, I want to be a part of these conversations that historically haven't been part of the conservative Christian dialogue. Um, and I don't know if that means that I'm no longer a conservative or if, uh, or if it's just time for the conservative conversation to broaden or what, but I just, I walk away from these conversations feeling so enlightened and energized and refreshed and grateful and humble. And um, yeah, I, are, are you guys having the same experience? When I, when I think about spaces like the Just Sex Conference, um, I get an image of myself holding on to like a backpack or something, and I just do not want to let it go. And the closer I get to that space, I feel like it's going gonna, it's gonna to take that backpack from me, and I have to believe it's something new. And so... Um, I'm not as afraid of the newness. I'm just afraid to lose what I've been holding on to for such a long time. Um, so if that's something some of our viewers are feeling, um, what words would you have for them? Would they lose their backpack? Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you put that question back on me because what is going through my head as you say that is um, one of the best books I have ever read by Richard Rohr is called Falling Upward. It's about developing a spirituality for the second half of life. And I think that a lot of what we're doing is kind of developing a sexuality for the second half of life as well. But in the book, he talks about how the first half of our life, we're really so focused on kind of the Old Testament God of the do's and the don'ts, these and the thou's, the Ten Commandments, you know, with, you know, just what to do. It, it's, we focus on building the container. But he says, we live, though, in the New Testament era where the focus needs to be on what was the container built for. And it was to contain unconditional love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, 
spiritual growth, passion, intimacy, all of that. And when we cling so desperately to the container, it's like we're holding it upside down. We can't let it be filled with the things that it's designed to be filled with. And so rather than thinking of it as a backpack that you don't want to let go of, think of it as a container that you're still going to hold on to it, but you're going to turn it right side up and let it contain the things that it's designed to contain. Wow, that is brilliant. Yeah, I don't want anyone to feel as if we're challenging them to let go of their spirituality or um, or their own personal sexual ethics. I just want to um, increase the dialogue, and you'll hear Bromley McClelligan say this on a future episode, uh, where she talks about how if 90 to 95% of the people can't do it the way that we perceive the Bible tells us it has to be done, then maybe we need to look at, are we interpreting all that correctly? Because that sure is a huge margin of error that so many people mess it up in so many different ways. Um, and so it just challenging people to, to look at it through a new lens of, is there a part of the conversation that I haven't been exposed to? And therefore I've been repeating what I've been hearing over and over again. Um, rather than being a part of a broader conversation, a healthier conversation, a deeper conversation, a richer conversation, a more fulfilling conversation that makes sense on both a spiritual front and a sexual front. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Touch Podcast. Uh, you can find out more about Touch Podcast, watch videos, uh, read blogs, and other reflections. Listen to episodes from Season 1 of Touch Podcast at touchpodcast.com. Subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to tell your friends. Don't forget to connect with us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, touch underscore cast. This has been Touch Podcast. I'm Nate Navarro. I'm Ryan Clark. And I am Shannon Etheridge, and we love you for listening.